0: And so welcome to Cobblestone Community Church. We are going to study the Word of God this morning, and we are going to be in the book of Numbers, uh, which is a lot of, uh, a part of the Bible we start not reading. We start right around Leviticus slowing down, and then Numbers, it kicks back up though because you actually have some movement. It's less less rituals and purifications and dead animals uh, and and more things moving. Uh, We're doing this because we are in two years of inviting all of us to be reading Scripture every day. We actually have a scripture reading plan that's going to last this church two years. You can jump in at any point in time. And I always, when we talk like this, I just want to put this grace out there that it's okay if you miss a day. I listen to it a lot of days. You're like, you don't just read it? No, like sometimes when I'm running, I'll listen to scripture. You're like, you can do that? You can do that. There's freedom to jump in. And the whole hope is that as we read scripture, that we will find Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. Which is like, I love this. I actually, I've been led to like tears a lot because I'm like, oh my gosh, I never really understood that, Lord. And then, wow, Jesus. I want to say this though, before we even go any farther, uh, I know it's normal for a pastor to say, let's pray. Um, But I I do, I feel like we're supposed to pray. And I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I think there's some significant things God wants to speak to this church through his word that was written down thousands of years ago. And then I think there's some significant things that the Spirit of God wants to speak in fresh ways to you that are a part of this body. But I also know this. The people that, like, I would call intercessors and prayer warriors, people that join in the prayer room on Sunday, have just said, like, it just feels like there's a fight this morning. And when those kind of people are around you, and I'm trying to get as many people like that as possible that are tuned into a wavelength that I'm not always tuned into— and they're going, something's like, it feels heavy. It feels like going through gravy. That's my words, not theirs. No one was talking to me about gravy in the prayer room. I thought, why not just let the people know? And then we'll ask God to come remove that and to teach us. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to say, church, pray. And I just want you to ask God to move in this, this house. I want you to ask him to teach you from his word. I ask for open ears and just the silencing of any other voice except his. Can we do that? Well, we're going to. So you can pray or not, but I hope you, Jesus, you are the king. And I thank you for your word, Lord. I think that it has really not a whole lot of weight on how well I speak, but on your spirit, like piercing us, changing us, molding us, moving us according to your inerrant word. And so, Lord, I just, I sit the people, me, us gathering together before you. And I ask that you would break that heaviness, you would kind of break through whatever we're supposed to break through, and that you would lead us to the very reason why you brought some people here is so they could, they could meet, see, and understand something we're going to talk about today. And so church, would you just pray really quick right there in your seat? If you want to, you can murmur like a aggressive whisper. So, Lord, I thank you for the stillness. Actually, Jesus, that's, this is the moment I always pray in services that we would actually get more caught up in looking at you, uh, that the environment we're in would fade away, that we would get so caught up in staring at the Son of God, you, Jesus Christ, that our hearts would burn as we hear what you spoke, as we hear what you had written down, that we might receive it. And I pray for that holy moment right now, God, where you come and make a meeting of your people who have gathered in your name a holy, divine thing, because you are in their midst, to so come dwell in our midst, right along with the families that are in this room. I pray for kids, they even, they, they're looking at Jesus, and for the, the elderly in the room, they're looking at Jesus, and for the students, Lord, we would all be caught up in the glorious Son of God. We love you, and I thank you that when, Jesus, you come into a room, everything bows. Oh, I look forward to what's going to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for praying with me, church. So we're in the book of Numbers, and really what happens if you start to track through the Pentateuch or the Torah, whatever you want to call it, the first five books of the Bible, is you kind of have a rhythm. God God makes his people. God creates all things. They are established in him. Adam and Eve, they sin. We are plunged as a humanity into a sinful state. Then you have Cain and Abel and all these stories you learn about in Sunday school, right? On a felt board. And what we've been looking at is, what's the story of God from Genesis to Revelation, because that's truly what the Bible is. I don't know if you know that. The story is not a story about humanity. It's a story about God. We're caught up in him, not the other way around. He's not caught up in us. We're caught up in him. And so as we read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and then Deuteronomy, sometimes we, dis- we disengage and we forget that it's part of a way bigger story. So as you get into the second half of Exodus, it's all focused on the construction of the tabernacle. A lot of laws, a lot of rules, a lot of cubits. And and then we we just naturally, because we're human beings in Oxford, Ohio in 2020, we kind of start to remove ourselves. And we're like, I don't care about cubits. Some of you are like, what's a cubit? Don't, it is just a measurement that God gives for the tabernacle. And then slowly you get into Leviticus and you're like, how many dead things? And like, oh. I don't want to hear the word discharge anymore, and I don't like this. This is weird. You're like, did he say, I did, because it's in there. And the Bible starts to lay out all these rules, and as we've talked about, all those are a a picture of who our God is and where his character is. And so when you read Numbers, once again, look for the Lord in it. Study what he's like when his people disobey, and they're going to disobey so much in Numbers. They're going to grumble and they're going to complain and they're going to go into the desert for a while, like 40 years. It's a while. Look for where God's heart is. Because what I think the enemy loves to do is try to make us play this dichotomy where the Old Testament God, he seems really angry, all into covenants a lot. And then you get to Jesus and it's all, Jesus. like, no, they're the same. So when we study Numbers today, the question I want you to ask is, why would God lead his people through the wilderness? Why does he do it? And I think there's some parallels we need to draw today because as we look at the book of Numbers, which is just about a census, which is the numbering of the people, I believe the Lord wants to speak to some of you about your heart that he calls out in them. Now, before we get there, I love these videos. They're from Bible Project. You can go cram them on the internet. And they actually give really good overviews of books of the Bible. And because there's kids in the room and I have ADD myself, I thought, let's watch one. So check out this overview of the book of Numbers.
1: The book of Numbers gets overlooked partly because
2: it has a really boring name. Which is a shame. In the Hebrew tradition, the book's name is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And it's an epic travelogue about Israel's journey through the desert on their way to the land promised to Abraham. Now, this pilgrimage should only take about two weeks on foot. But instead, it takes them about 40 years.
1: That's crazy. It's practically half of someone's lifetime.
2: Yeah, it's a very long camping trip with lots of interesting stories. But let's remember, it's most helpful to back up and start with how this book is designed. Right. Right. So the book is broken up into five sections. There are three wilderness locations broken up by two road trips that link all the pieces together. The first wilderness section is Mount Sinai right here on the map. And then in the second section, they travel to a region called Paran. A whole bunch of things happen here in the wilderness of Paran. And then in this fourth section is Israel's road trip to Moab. The book ends with a
1: large section in the wilderness of Moab right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land.
2: Now... Through all of these sections, the storyline just flows like a gripping, dramatic movie. Everything starts great, but then the trip goes horribly wrong, and it all ends with the final redemptive moment, the surprising act of God's grace.
1: So let's jump into this story. It all begins at the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And we've become really familiar with this mountain.
2: Yeah, if you remember, Israel came here after Egypt, and they formed a covenant with God here, got the Ten Commandments here, built the tabernacle here, and they've been at this mountain for one full year. And now they take a census to number the people as they prepare to leave. Right, and they're given these instructions for how to organize all those people in the camp. God's presence in the tabernacle, and then the tribe of Levi and the priests around it, and then the rest of the tribes around them. And this pattern, it is this visual symbol for how God's holiness is at the center of their existence as a people. And they are told that when the cloud of God's presence moves, they are to pack up and travel with it. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the Levites out in front and then the tribe of Judah and on and on. And this order is also a symbol for how God's holy presence is their leader and guide through the wilderness. We begin the
1: second section of the book with enthusiasm as they leave Mount Sinai and travel up to Paran.
2: God's with them. Everything's organized. This is going to be great. But it's not great. After just three days on the road, the people are complaining about their hunger and thirst. And then even Moses' brother and sister start badmouthing him in front of all the people.
1: Not a great start. But now we're into the third section, the wilderness of Paran. This is where they send the
2: 12 spies to scout out the promised land. Two of those spies come back, and they're really optimistic. But the other 10 are freaked out, and they don't trust God, and they go around saying, we're going to get annihilated in there. And so they start a mutiny, and they try to appoint a new leader who's going to take all the people back to Egypt. And so basically, they are refusing to go into the promised land, and God honors their choice. He says that this generation is going to wander for 40 years and die in the wilderness and only their kids will get to enter the promised land.
1: You know, this story here gets brought up many times in the Bible by different authors.
2: Yeah, and it always serves as a reminder that while God remains faithful to his people and his promises, he will honor their choices. He will let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. Okay, so the trip's been a disaster so far. And it gets worse here in this fourth section as they're traveling to Moab. Even Moses has a moment of rebellion and is disqualified from entering the promised land. Then there's another rebellion among the people that results in this snake attack. And what makes all these rebellions even worse is that every step of the way, God has been providing. He's been offering forgiveness. He's been giving them food and water and this crazy stuff called manna. Yeah, what is that stuff? Yeah, no, no idea. But in spite of all this, they keep complaining and they say that they wish they had died in slavery in Egypt. If I was God, I would just give up on these guys. You would think. But that's what makes this story in the final section so surprising. Israel has just arrived in Moab. And the king of Moab, he's freaked out that this huge group of people is traveling through his land. So he hires this pagan sorcerer named Balaam to pronounce curses on them.
1: This guy means business.
2: Yeah, and so Balaam, he says, okay, I'm going to pray to the Hebrew god and let's see what happens. And three different times he attempts to curse them. But each time he finds that he can utter only blessing. Most surprising is the last blessing, where he prophesies that out of Israel will rise a victorious king. And this king is somehow going to be connected to God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through this family. So here's Israel rebelling down in the camp, totally unaware that up in the hills God is protecting and even blessing them.
1: The book ends here in Moab. Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. They count up everyone again, just like at the beginning. They're leaving the old generation behind,
2: including Moses. But before they leave Moses, he gives them his last words of warning and wisdom. And that speech is what the next book, Deuteronomy, is all about.
0: There it is. This video was funded and there's by the 700- guy that made it. And so as you look at this overview, I love overviews. In fact, the part of the Bible that we skip a lot, like in your ESV study Bible that's this thick, is the theme and the overview and why was it written and what's the whole story. When we study the Bible, you want to know the context. You want to know what was happening. You want to know who was speaking. You want to know who wrote it. You want to know what they were going through. And as you follow this book, this is the people of God at the bottom of Mount Sinai who are in covenant with an eternal holy God. They were terrified at one point to even touch that mountain. God gives them Ten Commandments. We know these stories. And Moses smashes them when they have the golden calf. And then God sets up the tabernacle where his presence will dwell And then he sets them in order and says, my presence will go before you with the Ark of the Covenant. And then here's these tribes that will go after that one. And here's how the camp, God sets up everything. Because once again, as we said in Leviticus, because God wants to live and dwell with his people. God wants you, people. God wants to walk with you. God is not hiding from us. God has actually established for us, how do I walk a holy, righteous life? He's like, this is how you do it. And when I'm taking you to the promised land, which is, this is the longer story arc of Exodus, God's people are enslaved and they cry out for 400 years, save us, save us. And so God calls a man named Moses and 10 plagues and angels of death and Passovers and through the Red Sea. And if you stop long enough, you start to see the the parallels between you and I, because we're like, well, I wish God would send some plagues. Am I right? I wish God would do stuff like that. And I'm like, do you not realize that these Old Testament saints look longingly at the days that we are in? What, right now, the Old Testament saints in heaven are going, wow, I wish I could live that. And so why are so few of us like walking in that, excited about what God's doing and wishing, longing even for a manna in the desert when we have the true bread of life, Jesus himself. And so if you miss Jesus in the Old Testament, you missed the whole point of it. So in the beginning of this book, go to Numbers chapter 1. Uh, actually, go to Numbers chapter 9. We're going to study about 1 to 14-ish, which is about what you read this past week, if you're tracking with us. They have this census because God told them to. And the census is just this counting of people. And it kind of accomplishes three things as, as kind of context and background. Number one, God promised Abraham he would multiply his children. And that they would be more countless than like the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. Like this is God's fulfilling of look at the people of God being multiplied underneath Father Abraham had many sons. You then have the established centrality of worship of God because the tabernacle in that census, in those rules, is put right in the middle of the camp. So you go out of your house every morning and you see a tent with a glowing cloud over it. You are reminded that God is with you. This is the Israelites' experience. This is what they woke up to every day. Manna on the ground and the glory of God filling the tabernacle. And then finally, that census, it coordinated them. It said, all right, your guys' job is this. Your God's job is this. You're going to carry that. It put them in order so that God could march them into the land that he had promised them. So all of that brings us to the moment That I want to focus on three different moments that you have the Israelites being set up, walking into the wilderness, and then some grumbling that happens. Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning." This is exactly what I'm talking about. God establishes a tent, a tabernacle, a place where he will be. But not in like a conceptual, but like you don't go in there inappropriately. We cover that in Leviticus. This is the the holy meeting place of God. And you have the cloud. And when it says cloud, it's the cloud of his presence. And it hovers over this tent day and night. And at nighttime, it kind of glows like fire. And I joked early, but I mean, wouldn't it be great if God's presence was with us us like that? Wouldn't it be just amazing if tomorrow morning you came out and over your car was like a great big cloud of fire? And then the cloud lifted and it went over your work and you're like, I think I'm supposed to go to work today. Wouldn't that be great? And there's a little sarcasm on that. Because if you kind of compare and like kind of parallel, here's the Israelites, they have God amongst them, with them. And every time, this is what God tells them, when that cloud lifts and it goes to the next place in the wilderness, pack up camp, let the ark go out before you with the Levites, all your tribes in order, follow it, and then set up that tabernacle where that cloud rests. This is how God leads his people. But did you know, those that are in Jesus in this room, if you've said yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Woo! Right? Right? So I do have a pillar of presence over my life. Do I not? And I can go, God, lead me today and tell me what to do. Can I not? And he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who said that? Just yell, Jesus, you're in church. It'll be the right answer half the time. Jesus did, right? And so we have these promises. We have these parallels. The Israelites are God's people. We're God's people. The Israelites have God's presence with them. We have God's presence in us. We are these covenanted people in the New Testament sense that really, I don't think we realize how many parallels there are. And Jesus even said it was better that we had the Holy Spirit than him physically next to us. Do you feel like that this week? Do you feel that at all? I, I feel like some weeks I go by and I'm like, I'm aware of the presence, I'm aware of the presence. And the other weeks it's just like Monday and then all of a sudden it's Sunday. You ever have those weeks? So either we need to get way better at realizing that God is with us, that he wants to lead us, because this is literally what he's imaging for us in the tabernacle. This is what God's yelling at his people, and even the parallels. So God delivers his people from their slave masters, right? The Egyptians, they cry out, God, free us, help us. They're, they're oppressing us, and he does. And he leads them through the Red Sea, Moses, right? God frees you and me from our slave master, sin and death. Leads us triumphantly in procession behind him, not with a rod into an ocean or a sea, but with the cross shoved into the ground. Parts, sin and death. And now we are free to run as God's covenant people. The, I, the parallels just like, as I read this this week, man, I just read it over and over. I'm like, oh man, the parallels are just make me weep. But then the, the next parallels are the ones that made me like weep a little bit more bitterly. So you have God's covenant people. Should they not have every reason to be like, if you, if the cloud goes before us, I'd be running, right? If the cloud goes there, we can trust them. They literally watched them do 10 plagues. They watched the angel of death pass over their newborn children when they put blood of a newborn lamb over their doorframes. They had watched Moses literally slam a, where it was holding or was it slamming? I don't remember now. Any Bible nerds in the room? Moses parts the Red Sea, how God tells him to. We'll stick with that. And it parts, and they walk through on dry ground, and the entire Egyptian army gets it plunged on top of them. And then they are led free. They are free where they didn't used to be free. They had every reason to believe them, right? Every reason to be like, I think God has this under control. I would say we have the same reason to say God's got this under control. Except for the next section. Because in Numbers chapter 10, uh, they head out on their journey. And they're on their way to Kadesh. But they don't really make it until chapter 20 of Numbers, which you will read this coming week. And the reason that they don't make it is because this whole next section covers about 38 years of them complaining, grumbling, sinning, Rebellion, turning away from, being like, I want better food. That's I just summarized it for you. And if you're a parent, you know what that sounds like. When you put good food in front of your kids, and they're like, I don't like this. You're like, Oh, so told me you that. So we understand the emotions where someone provides something good for you and then you whine about it. And if you just walk through these next chapters, I'll just give you the highlights. In Numbers 11, chapter 11, they complain about their food. Oh, that we could eat the Egyptian food again and not this stuff in the desert. So it's not even something that's like that weighty. They're eating. They have food. They just want the old food that they like more. Then in chapter 12, you have Miriam and Aaron, and actually Miriam's gonna get actually, straight up leprosy at one point because she talks against Moses. And if you wanna know, that even in Numbers 12, there's some racism going on in there, I would say. It's because she's a Cushite. So she's a woman that's not an Israelite. That's why they talk up against Moses. And then you look at Numbers 13, and you have these, these spies come back, and they are timid, and they're like, I don't know if God can get us the promised land. They're really big. There's giants. And you only have two of them that go, Did you see what our God did? God will give us victory. And then in Numbers chapter 14, the people actually rebel against God. And then Numbers 16, you have the rebellion of court. It's just rebellion, distrust, grumbling, murmuring, grumble, 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 grumble. God's like, enough. And then they cry out, and God heals or saves or restores. And this is literally the story from now, even next week, we're still gonna be looking at the ways that they dis, dis, dishonored God. Go to Numbers chapter 11, starting verse one. This is where the complaining starts. This is where the complaining starts and it actually shows you maybe how some of your heart complaints affect God. And that's why I said this one whew, is a little heavier. But And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. Now, what would happen if every time one of us complained in this room, fire consumed like part of us? I bet complaining would go away pretty quick, right? Or you just stuff that way down. Like, no, this man is good, God. Mm." Like, you would be, right? And I know it looks harsh. You're like, where's this loving kindness God that we have? But when you start to study it, you have a God who hears his people complaining. And they're not complaining about food. They're complaining about God not providing. They're not complaining about physical things. They're, pro- they're complaining against a holy God who has already established, I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to save you, and I'm going to give you this stuff called manna. And I know people ask all that, what's manna? I don't know. Heaven bread. What's it look like? I don't know. Like a bread with olive oil on it. There you go. And that's not even the point, but God has shown us, and I'll put this into us, God has shown us that he provides God has shown us that he's mighty to save. God has shown us that he can heal. God has shown us that he hears our prayers. God has provided for this church in about 10 billion ways. And then every once in a while, about every four or five years, we'll, we, we might get off course a little bit. And you know what he does? Out of his faithfulness, pulls us back and saves us again. And some of you have that testimony too, right? So in every way possible, I see us, Cobblestone Community Church, in numbers. And you're like, well, that's mean. I'm not a complainer. (laughs) Me either. Except when I am. Because we all do this, right? Like, things don't go our way. I ask for my steak medium. Thank you. And then what's this, like, American concept of, like, well, I'm going to get a manager, Karen. Right? Right? This is the joke of our culture today because we are people that like what we want and want what we, we want to get what we want. And I deserve things to be easy and nice and bountiful with a white picket fence and a labradoodle and a safe family. But that's not what God promised his people. He promised he would be with them, that he would lead them, and he would give them what they needed. And so as we look at this, like, it's pretty much human nature to do what they're doing, right? Like, if I start giving you hot dogs instead of steaks, you probably start grumbling a little bit, right? Unless some of you weirdos are like, I love hot dogs. I love byproduct. <laughs> right? I'm not even talking like the real meat ones. I'm talking about like the, you know what I'm talking about. Like half rubber, chicken noses. Anyway. ADD kicked in hard for like five seconds. I'm back. I'm back. Hi. So when you look at this, you, you do know practically there's a difference between complaining about people. So you go to a restaurant and they give you food that's not up to par and you go and you kind of complain about it. You get a new meal for free and you're like, justice has been served. But when you're the people of God and God has said, hey, I want you to go that way. And I'm gonna provide for you every step of the way. In fact, I'm gonna save you from death and sin and all the things that haunt you in reality. And then along the way, you go, this isn't enough. You know there's a difference between complaining about people and complaining about God, right? You know that, right? And I found in my life, I know that there's times where God has said, go that way. I got you. And I get about four or five days in, and I'm like... Do you, though? Do you? And if I'm there, I know you're there. And not to put my, I'm just saying, it's human nature. And I feel like God's trying to call out something, just the fact that we're in this right now, and I look across the landscape of our culture, there's a lot of grumbling, a lot of complaining, a lot of murmuring. And and biblically, the Bible is full of warnings about complaining, about murmuring, about getting in arguments for the argument's sake, about all the things that we are faced with on a large scale as Americans in this culture, the Bible is talking about. Who oversees all governments on the earth according to scripture? You didn't want to say that loudly. God does? Yeah, God does. Who created every human being on this planet that you will ever interact with till the day that you die? God did who establishes the steps of man, governments of man. All the earth is the Lord, says the word of God. So I would be very careful. I even have this warning in my heart. Be very careful what you complain about. Be very careful what you grumble about. Because even in the New Testament, in Philippians 2, it says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Did you know that's in the Bible? That's in the Bible. That's not like, please be nice to your leaders and your churches. No, that's, What's the word everything mean? Everything. That's doing the dishes. That's loving your spouse. That's doing your schoolwork, college students. That's dealing with having a mask on. That's, I can go through every circumstance of our lives right now. When the job falls out, I'll go real heavy. When the cancer diagnosis hits, do everything without complaining. That's a hard that's a hard ask, right? That's, we're gonna need some power outside of us to walk in this, correct? We're gonna need God to do a work in our hearts that allows me that even when the bottom drops out of my life, I will not grumble against the Lord. I will trust him. Why? Because he's proven his faithfulness time and time and time and time again. Time again. You go on a little farther in Numbers. Go to Numbers chapter 14. And the reason I told you up front, look for what God's like in Scripture, because God's going to tell you how He perceives their grumbling and their complaining. And He's going to tell you the root problem of complaining and grumbling. The root problem of it is found in Numbers 14, verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, and I want you to hear, like a father or a God, like our father God saying this, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Do you hear the heart of God there? How long? Like, I almost feel it with, like, tears in his eyes. Like, when you say to your kid, don't talk to me that way. I love you so much. Like, even teenagers, amen. God says, how long will this people despise me? So God links the grumbling and the complaining of the people to despising. God connects this this complaining and this grumbling and this distrust and this like, when are we going to have good food to them not believing in him, not trusting him. Their faith is somewhere else is what he's pointing out. So the root problem of some of our grumbling, some of our complaining, some of our actually words of our mouth and our Facebook posts is not the world is a mess. It's that we don't actually have faith in God. And that's when I got smacked in the face by the word of God because ultimately, will they not believe in me? Will they not trust me? You are the covenant people of God who have been saved by the very son of God and filled with the spirit of God and given precious promises that are yes and amen because of Jesus. What else does he have to do? And so that's why all these promises in scripture that are like, I might get crushed, I might be perplexed, I might not know what to do, but I will trust the Lord. There's all these statements of the Psalms, there's all these statements of the New Testament. This is why they're singing in prison, because they're like, my circumstances might not match what I like, but God is good. And so I feel there's almost this invitation from Jesus to some of you today to replace your faith in him being good, of him being yes, and has, he has saved you, and he has promised you he is himself. And that regardless if you're walking through fire, hell, condemnation, shame, job loss right now, God has not abandoned you, and he's still good. So today I was like, man, we need to check our hearts, not just our mouths, because you are aware that things that come out of your mouth come from somewhere The grumbling of your heart, the fear of your life emanates from right in the middle of who you are, which is the word heart we talk about. Your heart, your will, the place that is you. Jesus talks about this. And so not only in an Old Testament sense does God go, will they not believe me? Will they not trust me? Will they not just walk a few steps into the wilderness and go, I think God can control this? Do you know who else talked like that? Jesus did. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus did this. In Matthew chapter 80, he actually says, and he said to them, this is to his disciples, why are you afraid, O oh you, of little faith? This is Jesus talking. And most of the time when we read this story, this is when they're on, they're on the ship on the, on the sea and the wind is crashing in and the storm's coming in and they think they're gonna die, but Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat. You would think the disciples, you would think the God's people who have been saved by grace through faith, who have been inherited the very spirit of God, that we would not be afraid when storms hit. But like the disciples and like the Israelites before them, we wake God up and we're like, do you not see this? And Jesus' response is for you and me. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. He attaches it to faith again. So, people of God, how's your faith? When you look at disparaging situations, situations that don't match the kingdom of heaven, situations that don't seem like God is in them at all, do you lose heart or does faith arise? Are you walking around with a shield of faith, as Ephesians talks about, that's like this big? And I feel like God's like, let faith grow in this body. We should be the people of God when we see impossible situations, when we see things that are not right, when we see things things that are not what God wants, faith arises and we go, I know God can deal with that. When the bottom drops out, and I'm not saying this is easy. I've walked through hard things with a lot of people, been in enough hospital rooms weeping. I'm saying God is good and he's never abandoned me. And I think what he's saying right now is what, what parts of your life there's the, grumb, the things you grumble about. What do you complain about most? And if you're a husband and you're like, I don't grumble at all, go ask your wife. She'll tell you. Ask her what you complain about. Ask her what you are fretting about. Because this, this, this grumbling of Israel is connected to their hearts. And our grumbling and our words are connected to our hearts. And so the call of the Lord that I really felt today was to trust God even in the hard places of your life. Y'all got some hard stuff in your life? I do. Anybody have impossible situations staring them in the face? Maybe like a wilderness for 40 years? And so in the midst of all of this, these are the scriptures that God kind of laid on me. Um, And in James chapter 3, it says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You are those that have been claimed by Jesus Christ. Therefore, you were old, dead, in sin, but now you're part of the kingdom of light, full of the Holy Spirit of God, and given the joy and the Spirit of the Lord. So what's coming out of your mouth on most days? do your words match the declaration that I love Jesus? And I think that's the first little question I felt like the Lord was like asking. Do your words, the way that you talk to your wife, men, does it match the declaration that you are Jesus's? Does the way that you talk to your roommate or about them match the declaration that you belong to the Lord? Or are you grumbling and complaining and slandering and talking? Because that's out of your heart. Secondly, I believe these things, this idea of a a faithless Christianity, an idea of a people of God that don't trust God for anything, is exactly the root of what the Lord wants to root out of this church. That when we see impossible situations, we take it as a challenge to trust God more. When we see things that are not, not the justice of God, we cry out even louder. When Satan hits us, we go, let's pray 24 hours now. This is the reaction of faith to things that aren't the way that they should be. And and so when I look back, even the things that God was speaking early this year, even late last year, it was on repeat that an an expectationless Christianity is, is, is like hurts the heart of God. In the same way that God says, will you not trust me? I think that Jesus is looking at some of you today and like, will you not trust me? Have I not shown myself true and faithful and good? And on top of that, I've said on repeat, there's this this type of Christianity that is faithless, that expects nothing from God, that doesn't think he's gonna show up, that, ah, i just got to hold on by faith. And there's faith in this thing, but there's the goodness of God. And so faithless Christianity, I think God wants to kill in us. But to do that, we kind of have to, open our hearts, and go, God, search me. So if you're like, well, what do I do with the fact that you just told me we shouldn't grumble and it's a sign of my heart, what do I, how would I know? Well, I want you to write down two things. Number one, write down Psalm 1914. I pray this all the time, and I'm praying that the Spirit of God would do it today. Instead of complaining, instead of walking through hard stuff and being tempted because it's human nature to grumble, We invite God to search our hearts. And if you're a Christ follower in this house, this is what I want you to do. Pray Psalm 19. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want you to spend time this week praying that over your life. Lord, search me. Search my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the Old Testament saints crying out for God to make their faith connect with their heart and that there wouldn't be any disparaging parts. So let God search you. And if you're a son or daughter, God disciplines his kids. And so maybe you've been walking in a faithless Christianity and you just feel beat up all the time and you're like, I can't, I don't want another hospital visit. I don't want to deal with it. Think, but God's actually asking you right now for faith to rise up. But I think it starts with, God, search my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, make the meditation of my heart be acceptable to be pleasing to you, that I wouldn't be grumbling, that I wouldn't be con- I'd be content in you. And then secondly, um, I want you to start asking the question, what would Jesus say about fill in the blank? What would Jesus say? In the hard parts of your life, Jesus is looking at that hard situation. What's he think about it? What would he say if he was there? Next time you're praying for somebody, and I don't care if it's depression, sickness, you don't lost a job, what would Jesus say? Because we're Jesus people. And I just want to remind you of the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 11, and it says, And Jesus answered them Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. These are Jesus's words, right? Been yelling at any mountains recently? And usually, guys, we, 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 we go away from these teachings because we're like, that doesn't work, Like go to Brookville after this and go yell at the dam. Fall down! And you'll be like, see, doesn't work. But when you start to get to the heart of what Jesus is talking to you about, he's like, in faith, I'm asking you to walk in faith that in these things in your life, the big things in your life, start talking to me about them. It's not about the mountain, it's who's walking with you next to it. Jesus is. And Jesus, he can, like, Commands fig trees to die. What happens to them? Commands dead men to rise. What happens to them? Commands those that are sick to ha- ro- like be healed. What happens to them? Commands demons to come out. And what happens? This is the Jesus that you know, that you claim with your mouth, resides with you and is with you everywhere you go from this day to the day that you die and you see him face to face. Are you walking by faith or by sight or by grumbling? Which one? Those are your options. Are you walking by faith that the Son of God has sealed you and saved you and is with you and is for you? Are you walking by sight? Everything I see dictates what I think or what I feel and then I respond. Or are you doing life by grumbling and complaining and dishonoring the faith that you say you have? And I know this is not a fun word. I know this is not like, oh, chipper days, get to skip out of here having a good day. I know that. But this is what the word of God calls us to. Just search our hearts. Is there complaining in you? Repent of it. Turn from it and place your faith in the Lord. Is there complaining all over your life? Stop it. It hurts the heart of God. Repent of it. Turn in faith and run after Jesus. Are there impossible situations in your life and you're just weeping down? Stand up. Start praying in faith to the living son of God and watch the mountain start to fall. This is the word of the Lord. And I want to join you in some of this. And, and I had a crazy picture that I'm actually not going to walk out, uh, but the picture was this, and I think it's, it's exactly what I've seen happen before. I was going to invite a couple, like, sixth grade students up here. I can just call you by name if you want me to do it. And then I was going to find the sickest person I could in the room. I mean, the person that's, like, just feels broken by life, and I was going to ask you to trust us for a second. And I was going to have those sixth grade. There's two girls in particular um, that I was going to have them lay hands on you and pray for you. And you would see, because usually it's the kids, right? They get this, this coming to Jesus like a kid, that if dad told me it's going to happen, it's going to happen, that Jesus is everything and he can do anything, that mentality. The kids have that a lot more than adults. The adults, they get, we get jaded. We, 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 we somehow think God is like held up on us because we had bad things happen. Kids don't have that. So when you ask a kid to pray for life or healing or or even just bring them an impossible situation and go, I just want you to pray what Jesus would do. You know what they pray? I mean, just kingdom of heaven prayers. And so when Jesus says like, like childlike faith, that's what I want to rise up in this house. A childlike faith that says God said he would. I don't have to see it, I don't have to know it right now. I don't have to be eating the finest Egyptian foods. I know the promises of God and I'll ask it in accordance with it. But I want to do it this way instead of inviting the kids up here is inviting you all to respond to the word of the Lord because we're going to worship out of this. And I think some of you right now need to say I'm not going to complain anymore. I'm going to look at the storm of my life. I'm going to look at this dark season of my life, and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to praise God at the top of my lungs. I'm going to yell that God is good and God is faithful and God is worthy. And then some of you need to get on your face and start interceding for the broken places and areas of your life. And the reason you haven't seen breakthrough, the reason you haven't seen mountains falling, is because you haven't asked. Let faith arise. Let it come alive. Live by faith, not by sight, by the promises of God. And so I want to pray one final prayer as the band comes up. So if you're a band, get up here. I just want to bless you because not only before they left on this journey, the Israelites, were. Aaron was told, pray this prayer over the people. Pray this blessing over the people. And so I want to pray this blessing that's found in Numbers 624 if you want to go read it later. It's a famous one, but I'll say this. Uh, we, we do things differently at the end of services now. There's not so much like a cut goodbye moment. It's all open-ended from here on out. And what I mean is you can go if you need to. If you have kids, you're like, thank God, that's fine. But you can sit here, you can do whatever you need to do, and I hope you respond to the word of the Lord and the spirit of God stirring you up. After a couple songs, Some prayer teams are going to come up here, and they're going to come up here. There'll be two people. They'll be wearing name badges. All you need to do is come up to them, maybe confess some sin. Maybe ask for them to pray faith-filled, childlike prayers over the big situations of your life. Or maybe you're like, I don't want to go up front. Well, there's a prayer room. You can go back there, and somebody will pray for you there too. All I mean to say is we're just going to respond in worship, in praise and prayer to whatever God wants to do. So Jesus, we exalt you, and I love that your Lord, your Word takes us to hard places like, are you a grumbler? And I repent, Lord, of the places that I have been not trusting, not walking in faith. And I pray your Holy Spirit would come right now and lead us, Lord, uh, to show us our hearts. Correct us, Lord. And before we step into worship and people start going on their own ways, Lord, I pray this prayer from your word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Lord, bless these in this room. I speak blessing and life and a lightness that only comes from being with you. I know my words were heavy, and so I pray any condemnation or shame be lifted, but I do pray for godly conviction. Bless them, Lord. Keep them, God. Keep us in step with you. Lead them mightily. Make your face shine upon them. May we be people of your presence that look upon the face of God, that stare at the Son of God. May your face, your countenance, your glory, who you are, Shine upon every person in this room I pray the glory of the Lord would shine upon them I pray that you would beckon them Lord From a place of faithlessness Or despair Into a place of hope, joy And contentment in your promises Lord be gracious to them Be gracious to us kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness and mercy. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace. So I speak peace in the name of Jesus. And Lord, where there's supposed to be peace, pour it out like a river. Where there's supposed to be that, like, holy discontentment, stir up your people to repent and praise and rejoice and walk by faith. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill our hearts full of faith? I pray faith would arise right now, a deep trust. of God I'm going to leave you right there in a place of prayer and response listen to Jesus past this point and worship as long as you like there's not going to be a dismissal it's just the Lord's room